This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Nikolai Zikolko, co-director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a professor of management here at Wharton. Uh, just a reminder, we are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. Now, if you have any comments or questions during today's show, please give us a call. Uh, the phone lines are open at one eight four four wharton and that is 1-844-942-7866. We really have a great lineup today uh, talking about two of my favorite topics, chocolate and artificial intelligence and how they interact with each other. Uh, coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by uh, Doug Straten. Uh, he's the chief digital commerce officer at Hershey. Uh, but first, I'm really thrilled to welcome Angela Zutavern. Uh, Angela has more than 25 years of experience in artificial intelligence. Uh, she was a vice president at Buzellen, leading their data science R&D efforts, including areas of quantum machine learning, uh, computer vision, deep learning algorithms. Uh, she moderated the chief data officer council for the U.S. federal government community. And currently, she is a managing director of the digital practice at the uh, global management consulting firm Alix Partners. Uh, she's also co-author of the book, The Mathematical Corporation. Angela, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nikolai. Great to be here. Yeah. So whenever we have new technologies, right, there's usually quite a lot of hype, quite a lot of buzzwords flying around. And maybe let's maybe just start out with some basics. Maybe you can help us sort of sift through some of these terms. So people talk about machine intelligence. People talk about deep learning. What does that mean? Can you help, help us uh, all kind of make a little bit more sense of these terms? Sure. So for the past 50 years or more, we've been explicitly programming computers to carry out instructions. And the big change now is that computers are able to learn on their own. This isn't actually new. Um, that re This research has been going on for many, many years. What's new now is we have the computing power necessary and actually the data necessary to make artificial intelligence work. And so I use artificial intelligence and machine intelligence as an umbrella term, uh, meaning the concept of machines being able to take data and learn on their own from it. And then within that, there are specific uh, types of algorithms and techniques, um, the broad category being machine learning, and within that you have deep learning and, and other areas. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, great. That, that's really helpful. Um, now. Let's maybe explore a little bit of sort of what are computers already really good at? So we're saying, you know, where are the machines really intelligent? Yes, yeah, so machines are actually outperforming people um, at many types of tasks. And so the main areas are anything having to do with comprehending a large set of data, um, perceiving detail, identifying patterns, any type of number crunching, mm -hmm. remembering tasks and then kind of documenting and organizing. And so that's where it makes sense to really implement some of these types of technologies to free up people time to mm -hmm. focus mm -hmm. on the more innovative tasks mm -hmm. and those areas where people are clearly outperforming machines and will for a long time to come include um, creativity, imagination, 
reasoning and and kind of problem solving and and, and strategy. Mm-hmm. And so your your hope is your belief is that the uh, machines will not outperform on this uh, on those dimensions too soon. You know, machines learn from what happened in the past, uh-huh. and so this is uh, especially relevant to the innovation topic. Yeah, and uh, and many people have asked me, you know, why were uh, none of the you know predictive models for the World Cup, you know, why were they so off? None mm-hmm. of them were right. None of, none of them were even close. Well, it's because some outcomes happened that had never happened in the past before. Same thing with innovation. A lot of times with innovation, you're doing something for the first time ever. And so if there's no past data to learn from, uh, the, the artificial intelligence or the machine learning models won't grasp those concepts. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is you you started out with saying kind of what computers are really good at is data processing and maybe seeing some patterns um and then right of course that is sort of feeding into a decision making process inside firms right and and that's right. i think where it becomes now kind of interesting right so i understand that the computers are really good in assessing data but eventually someone has to make a decision right and of course every firm would love to have like a data driven decision making process right? probably everyone claims they have one and uh, yeah. so kind of how do these firms actually move from you know data gathering and data analysis to now call it insight or at least sort of you know impact on decision making what what's the process like there so i'll give you an example mm-hmm. of uh, a project that Merck worked on and so there uh, one of the leading makers of human vaccines. And they had a vaccine manufacturing process that kind of had four stages. So there was growing yeast, there was agitating, fermenting, and purifying. And their problem wasn't data. They, in fact, had a ton of sensor data on all their manufacturing mm-hmm. equipment. Um, now, what was happening in their manufacturing process is batches were getting ruined and if something goes wrong somewhere along the way, you have to throw out the entire batch. So it's mm-hmm. very expensive um, when something goes wrong. What they had was data within each of those four phases I described. Mm-hmm. And what they hadn't been able to do previously was combine the data across all four phases. This was just due to, again, kind of the complexity, mm-hmm. compute power um, hadn't been previously available. So when they combined the data across, it gave them completely new insight into what was going on and kind of causing the batches to go bad. And it actually turned out that, um, it, you know, it was, it was uh, the results were kind of unexpected. So they originally suspected culprits like raw materials. And in the end, it turned out to be some problems in the fermentation process. Mm. But the complexity was such that even with years and years of experience with this in this manufacturing environment, a person couldn't look at all that data and come out with a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And the machine learning models were, were able to point in the right direction. Mm, interesting. You know, but but I think the real power is from the combination of people and machines. So mm-hmm. it's the, the machine intelligence and the human intelligence together that that bring the best you know measurable business outcomes. Yeah. So sort of interesting, this example, because you said they already had the data. They were just unable kind of to see the pattern in the data. Right? Yeah. In fact, they had 10 years worth of data set uh-huh. from thousands of sensors. Yeah. You know, so an amazing treasure trove of data. But like I said, until recently, 
we didn't have the compute power or mm-hmm. the algorithms or the experience with machine learning that companies do today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were lucky in that they had the, that, the raw data set to, to learn uh-huh. from. Um, normally, you're lucky if you get a, a couple years worth right. of data, you know, to build a model on, but to have 10 years worth of data mm-hmm. was really, really impactful. Yeah. Now, kind of with the decline of cost of sensors and all kinds of things, the the, the cost of getting data is declining, right? And so yep. every firm is kind of tempted to say, well, you know, I heard data is important. Let's collect more data. Uh, and then the question is sort of what to do with it, right? And right. I guess sort of how do you even think about a strategy of collecting data? Uh, I see some firms, they say, well, let's just collect everything that we can, yeah. <laughs> right? Yep. Then other firms say, well, I have a precise model in my mind of what is the relevant data, and I only want to capture that, <laughs> right? Yep. And and so that probably is also not the right approach, right? So how do you go about, right, sort of on the one hand, as you said, you want to let the machines see patterns that you didn't know about. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to drown in data, right? Right. One of the biggest mistakes that companies make is, starting with a specific technology or specific data in mind. Mm-hmm. Instead, you know, I think successful approaches start with the business problem. So what problem are you trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Save money, you know, increase revenue, whatever the, whatever the case may be. And, and that business problem has then got to drive the approach both for the technology that you implement as well as the the data that you collect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think kind of that top-down business problem, uh, you know, start, yeah. uh-huh. you know, will lead you along the path. Now, sometimes the, the data that you would uh, need to collect to answer that business problem might be uh, too expensive, not available, mm-hmm. take too long, right? But at least you've started with the business problem in mind yeah. and you can adjust from there. I don't see a lot of you know, bottom line returns on just collecting data mm-hmm. for the sake of collecting yeah. data. Yeah. Now, having said that, if companies are already collecting data, it's a good idea to keep that. It's not expensive to store it, and you mm-hmm. never know down right. the road when that might come in handy. But yeah. I, I'm a huge uh, believer in starting with the business problem that you're trying to solve. I see too many times where companies are chasing after kind of the shiny new uh-huh. technology, um, and, you know, and companies lose patience or boards lose patience and people are saying, what are we getting for this investment? Where are the bottom line results? Yeah. So let's let's dig a little bit more because I'm, I'm fascinated about this topic also as a researcher, right? Because we are, yeah. we, we tend to have this feeling, of, okay, so let me build my model first and then let me try to create a data set around to test my model, Right. And in part, I think what you were saying, and I think lots of other people are saying, that the power of these new technologies is uh, that you may not have to have a model up front, but you let the computer, the deep learning algorithm, in some sense find what is actually the right model, given the data that's fed into it. Um, yeah, that, and, and so, exactly so to find right, yeah. to, right, but but to find the right balance now, because then if I don't have a model, I don't actually know what is the relevant data, 
<laughs> right? If I have a model, I know what data I want, but then I'm constrained by the model that I put in there. If I don't, then I feel like I'm sort of completely unconstrained, right? And uh, so I'm still probably biased in some sense of what kind of data I collect, right? And so I'm trying to feel a little bit out of, you know, what, what have we learned about good practices of, of, of how to start this process if you want to be sort of model agnostic or how model agnostic can you be? And I think you gave us already sort of a good idea of, well, at least we need to understand what problem you're trying to solve, right? Yeah. So that, that's yeah, probably really helpful. Um, you know, starting with what problem you're trying to solve. And then there are definitely some some uh, areas in, in business and in uh, research as well where uh, models have, you know, been proven to, to show some really interesting and successful results. So, for example, one of those is in uh, customer insights and customer journey. Mm-hmm. So a lot of companies are, you know, trying to get a better understanding of their customers um, to figure out, you know, what kind of um, experience and that they're after, what kind of offers they may want to respond to. Mm-hmm. And that's easier said than done um, because to your point about data, um, many companies have data about the customer in different places. And so mm-hmm. maybe you have one set of data in your marketing department and another set of customer data in your service department. And if you have a physical store, maybe you have another um, customer set of customer data from your point of sale system. And it's really tough for companies to match up um, all those different mm-hmm. types of data. Yep. But we know that there's, that there's big returns and a lot of value from getting that customer insight. And so if you start with the business problem of, I want to uh, you know, increase my revenue, increase my customer satisfaction by providing, you know, more tailored offers and being more responsive, right? That's your business problem. Um, then there are kind of a set of models you can go by, and then that leads you to certain common set of data, data sets that can be the company's data as well as external purchase data. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily uh, – plowing new ground entirely um, because yeah. it's been shown that you know this is a this is a you know ripe area for for returns when it comes to this type of technology mm-hmm. it's sort of an interesting related question here about you know okay so I'm a firm I, I want to do this uh, I probably don't have the capabilities inside right now uh, so I'm going out and I'm trying to hire some artificial intelligence guys and gals and who could run my my models Um and so I guess the question is sort of how much business mo- knowledge do these people need to know to actually do a good job, right? So we see this quite often, right? So we have great computer scientists or whatever, then we throw them into a particular context, be it medicine or be it, be it um, uh, a business. And so, I'm, again, I'm just, just curious to hear your experience of how firms have been able to build up their capabilities of um, you know, mastering these new technologies of data gathering and data analysis well. Yeah, I think there's no one, um, there's no one answer yeah, to that. Yeah. It's a combination of things. So business understanding is absolutely critical, and you can't have a successful project without it. But that business understanding doesn't have to reside in one person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and so I, for me, the best results I've seen have come from a team of people and the more diverse their backgrounds and skill sets, the more innovative their results tend to be. Um, so I think that, you know, some companies already have a mature team of data scientists. Um, others are kind of just beginning their journey. Other companies outsource it. 
there are wonderful machine learning platforms and tools available now that help democratize data mm-hmm. science. And so, you know, you, you want to have some kind of training and background yeah. in it, but you don't need, um, you know, an in-depth in uh, degree to build some of these, um, you know, more basic level mm-hmm. machine learning mm-hmm. type models. And these, these platforms and tools make it a lot easier for folks. Um, I would say, so one example that comes to mind with um, was a project with uh, the Intercontinental Hotels Group did, mm-hmm. and it was around this kind of customer journey, customer experience. And previously, they, like a lot of other companies, had uh, you know kind of a handful of customer segments that they worked with, mm-hmm. customer profiles, if you will. And they would base their, you know, marketing promotions and offers on these customer segments. And, and most companies, um, when they're relying on, on people to make the, these uh-huh, yep. about the customer segments, they just have a few segments. Uh-huh, that's yep, all that yep. we can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you, when you kind of flip that and you rely on a machine learning type approach to build your customer segments for you, uh, you can handle a lot more customer segments. So mm-hmm. IHG, they had enough profile variables about their customers and their data where they were able to get 10,000 customer segments. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't do that if you don't know a lot about your customers, if you have a lot of detail about your customers. So, so again, a person can't keep track of tailored offers for 10,000 different segments, but machines can. Uh Um, They can also test offers, you know, get um, really quick feedback on how the offers are being received and make adjustments accordingly. And so um, incorporating this different mindset about, you know, letting, letting the machine learning yeah. models do some of the heavy lifting uh-huh. um, can, can have really big results. Uh, in this case, it was an increase in kind of revenue generation, customer satisfaction. Yeah, great. Uh, for those of you just uh, tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zikolko, and I'm speaking with artificial intelligence expert Angela Zutavern. Now, Angela, you already gave us two very nice examples, uh, uh, Merck and uh, uh, IHG. Um, obviously, you have a lot more examples in your book on the mathematical uh, cooperation. Um, before we go into more great examples of success stories, can you share maybe some failures with us or at least kind of tell us a little bit about what are sort of the stumbling blocks that you have seen or where people, you know, where, where firms went awry or managers went awry when they tried to become all digital? Yeah, so um, whenever you're working with uh, technology or any type of innovation, um, advanced areas, there are, there are always things that are, that are going to go wrong. And um, I've, I've seen kind of lots of those things, things happen along the way. And I'll just say that an AI-type uh, approach really acquire, requires experimentation. Mm-hmm. So by definition, you can't have experimentation without failure, failures yep, along yep. the way. Uh-huh. The, the idea is to kind of, uh, you know, fail early, learn from it, yep. um, not have a big failure at the end where, where it has mm-hmm. a kind of a catastrophic yeah. uh, impact. But um, a few examples that come to mind are when, you, when the underlying data set is biased, um, yeah. Any model you build based on that data set will be biased, mm-hmm. and so that's a that's a big issue when it comes to, um, say, the criminal justice system, yep. mm-hmm. um, or you know, making decisions about benefits 
Um, there's all, there have also been well-known examples about uh, what happens when you don't have a broad enough training data set. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Microsoft released a, an AI chatbot named Tay. Um, they released it on Twitter. It had been uh, trained on um, conversations. And, but what happened was the training data set wasn't broad enough to cover what Tay actually encountered on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, what Tay encountered was a lot of inflammatory yep. Yep. content. Um, and so Tay learned that and started, uh-huh. you know, yep. tweeting. Yep. I remember that story. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think, you know, there, there's other. Um, I think there were other missteps when uh, companies were were pushing the envelope in terms of collecting data on their customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so video data or uh, phone location data within the yep. store, and th- and there was a backlash, um, privacy concerns, yep. or you know, not not getting permission to kind of collect that data. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been o- other missteps in terms of uh, companies sharing data with not, without permission. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so I think not accounting for bias, not having a broad enough training data set, you know, privacy and ethics issues, mm-hmm. uh, all of those are things to watch out for. I mean, as well as... Um, thinking that data is anonymized when it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times anonymized data sets can be kind of reverse engineered to, yeah. to identify people. So 63% of the U.S. population could be uniquely identified by our, by our sex, zip code, and birth date, uh-huh. right? So, yeah. Yeah. so I think companies got to be very careful when they uh, release or say they're dealing with anonymized data sets. Yeah. So I guess I need to find people who have my birth date, right, and, and live <laughs> right. close by to them. Um this is great because, uh, you know, covered sort of two of my, my, my questions that I had. So one on the bias side, because as you just said, kind of this has come up lately in terms of thinking about, you know, underwriting for insurance or, or in the criminal justice system that, of course, our data is biased and almost inevitably so, right? Because we had certain models in our minds, so we captured only certain data, so we have only certain variables that we can train our machines on, right? And so that gets us back sort of to this issue of how do we de-bias this at the same time not drown in data? Right. So, I mean, there's mo- there's different kinds of biases. Mm-hmm. So um, there's some uh, bias in the data set that can be removed, mm-hmm. and there's other bias in the data set that is just a result of a societal bias. Yeah. And um, it's the actual data, and you can't, can't remove you can't remove it. And so, mm-hmm. again, that's where the human judgment comes yeah. in. That's why it's always a combination of people and the machines. You can never rely on just a model, especially when it comes to really critical decisions about, um, you know, the justice system yeah. And, yeah. And, and social other social issues because yeah. um, there there is, um, you know, unconscious bias in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, the data reflects that. Yeah. And again, I think this is sort of interesting when it made, made me points of, again, so to certain areas of expertise where we are more likely to see computers or computer judgment replace human judgment versus augment, right? So I'm, I'm thinking about uh, um, diagnosing skin cancer, right? Fairly high yep. paid, fairly, yeah. high, fairly high paid, fairly high stakes job where it seems like... Uh, Training computers to do this uh, can become really, really good, right? Yeah, that's a that's a great example, and I've been involved with some really cool efforts um, 
in the healthcare community. Mm-hmm. So there was one competition, uh, Data Science Bowl, uh, through Kaggle, and uh, the NIH provided uh, data sets on MRI heart scans. Mm-hmm. And the competitors um, analyzed, you know, you built machine learning models, got them automatically analyzed the heart scans. And previously, it would take a trained cardiologist about 30 minutes to go through these heart scans on mm-hmm. a computer and circle certain areas of the heart to come out with these measurements. And the competitors um, got really accurate uh, you know, results yeah. using the machine learning models. And what was interesting is um, the competition has a public leaderboard, and so people usually end up uh, competing as individuals. And then toward the end of the competition, they'll kind of pair up or group up. And so you'll see all the competitors getting to a plateau of a certain level of accuracy. Mm-hmm. And then once they pair up or group up, um, that accuracy jumps to yeah. kind of like a whole new level. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. so what's the reason for this? And it's because diversity, mm-hmm. um, you know, just um, brings additional uh, new approaches, additional yep. ideas, new thoughts. And so... The winners of this competition, so first of all, the, the, to your question about kind of business knowledge, most of the top placers in the competition had no previous hmm. experience in the health industry whatsoever. Yeah. Now, they were able to learn from a cardiologist who gave them that, that understanding, yeah, yeah. but um, the winning team was uh, someone from uh, academia, and he ended up teaming up with a woman um, from, and he was from Europe. Um, this woman was a kind of a financial quant jock uh-huh. from California, uh-huh. right? And together, uh-huh. they, they came up with the winning solution. Very cool. So great story there. Yeah. And there have been similar breakthroughs on earlier diagnosing of lung cancer, again, based on scans of the lungs. So a lot of ac- applicability there. Yeah. The other, no, very, very exciting. Um, the other issue that you brought up, which I think maybe deserves a few more minutes, well, it probably deserves a whole hour uh, at <laughs> least, is the data privacy issue, right? Um, sort of clearly important important concern, um, sort of constantly shifting in, in what people seem to be comfortable with, sharing or not sharing. Uh, clearly, the regulatory space is evolving and Europe is moving in a slightly different direction than the U.S. is. And uh, right, and so I'm a firm in here, and I said, "Wow, you know, I, I want to collect all of this data. I want to uh, create, you know, my more connected strategy." Um, what advice do you give these firms of how to navigate this minefield? Yeah, and it's really a global issue. And yeah. so, with GDPR, for example, we've seen a lot of U.S.-based companies um, following GDPR, uh, even though it's not a, a U.S. law, but but they're global, right? So you yeah, have to, no, you have to exactly. follow it anyway. Yeah, so you yeah. might as well implement it company-wide. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that um, it's a challenge right now that we have this kind of opt-out culture mm-hmm. um, in a lot of uh, apps and, and other uh, uh, ways that businesses collect data. And I believe we need to move from an opt-out to an opt-in. Mm-hmm. So right now the opt-out is if, if you opt-out, you don't get to use the app. I think we need to pivot to an opt-in so that everybody kind of owns their personal data and people have a way to choose who they share it with. And that can be companies, that can be charitable organizations, but 
But until we move to this kind of opt-in culture, mm-hmm. uh, I think we're going to continue to have these um, differences of understanding. You know, some people um, aren't bothered by sharing their data, and others don't want to share any of their data. Yep. So there's no yep. one-size-fits-all answer. Right, right. So we said kind of these uh, technologies are evolving, uh, you know, fairly quickly. These technologies probably over time will destroy some jobs, but they will probably create some jobs. So as a, as a parent, as an educator, <laughs> what should we do, right? Uh, so kind of what, what's your advice? Because right to high schoolers or to college students, because um, probably the jobs that a lot of them will take have not been created yet, right? Uh, and that's sort of our, our challenge. So, so what are some of the, the skills that you would recommend uh, you know, the young folks out there, you know, to prepare themselves sort of for this for this future, which may look somewhat different than what we currently have. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And uh, I do think that um, the jobs that will get kind of automated are the more um, routine or mundane tasks. And so even though it will be a hard transition for people who are doing those jobs, um, in the long run, it will allow people, I think, to do more interesting work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to take away from, you know, kind of the difficulty of, of moving from where we are now to where we will be in a few years. I would say for people uh, going through school, um, I, I see very soon uh, where, where everybody will be able to do machine learning mm-hmm. um, in the same way that, uh, for example, a lot of people use Excel today. Yeah, yeah. And so anyone who uses Excel today or would build a regression model in Excel, for example, you know, tomorrow will be using these machine learning tools mm-hmm. because they are so available and, um, and really kind of intuitive to use. Um, machine learning and AI, they're, they're available on our handhelds now. So, so I do think that it'll, it'll be widespread. I think that, uh, you know, any, any student would be, no matter what their major or what areas they're pursuing, they would be well served to add in some uh, level of computer science, AI, and machine learning um, into that, that uh, program of study mm-hmm. because you can't uh, – you, you won't come across a project in today's business world or academic world that doesn't somehow involve data. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, maybe last question here. How do you keep up with sort of these advances in technologies? <laughs> and right, again, every day you open up the paper and you see sort of uh, you know, improvements are being made. So what kind of information sources do you tap into so that you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm up to speed. What's the newest in machine learning, deep learning and, and what have you? Yeah, so the best source of information for me is working hand-in-hand on a day-to-day basis Mm. with these companies. And so the reason I came to Alex Partners was the kind of work that we do and also the way we approach it, Mm -hmm. both of which are very different from from, um, other consulting organizations. And so the type of work that we focus on is really uh, time-critical, must-be-done, you know, very high-impact work when it really matters and the way we work is in small senior teams and so um, as a partner myself and all of my colleagues we're out uh, working hand in hand with these with these companies and these Mm -hmm. organizations 
on a day-to-day basis. We're not kind of sitting back or we're seeing the projects where we're there in the details. And so that's one way. And yeah. and for me, I get to work across industries mm-hmm. with these technologies. And so I'm able to keep a handle on, you know, not just what the retail industry is doing with AI, but also what the uh, oil and gas industry yeah, or the uh-huh. consumer products industry, you know, what, what everybody's doing across business lines. And that's very helpful. And then I'd say another way is um, studies. So uh, we do our own research and mm-hmm. studies at Alex Partners. I read other people's uh, research and studies, but um, I, I read everything I can get my hands on. And uh, I actually love Twitter as a source of uh, great uh, knowledge on, on AI and other technology-type areas. So yeah. I, I read that a lot. Quite wonderful. Well, Angela, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. It was great. Thank you. Uh, Where can our listeners go to keep up with you? Twitter's websites where blogs? They can go to uh, Twitter at Angela Z. Tavern or AlexPartners.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Um, We need to take a short break. Uh, When we come back, I'll be uh, joined by uh, Doc Strayton. Uh, Chief Digital Commerce Officer at Hershey. Now, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 